A very good evening to you. I can't tell you what an honor it is, what a privilege it is, how humbling, in fact, it is uh, to have received uh, this exciting invitation to bring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to you on such an auspicious occasion. I am so grateful. Um, I've been looking forward to this as it meant to reconnecting with a few friends, not least uh, Jared, um, and, and well, as well as making a, a number of other new friends as well. Uh, but brethren, let me assure you there is nothing that excites me more and I trust excites you more than the prospect of hearing the word of the Lord God and rejoicing in his gospel. I'm grateful, um, grateful um, beyond expression for the support of the important work of the Lydia Center for Women and Families. I am persuaded it is an, it is an urgent um, and tragically necessary work and a timely one as God's providence has unfolded in recent years. But brother, let me also assure you, I have not come to preach an issue, but to preach the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one should be preaching issues anyway. And yet, brethren, I hope that what we will see this evening from God's word and from the light the gospel shines on real life, that the issues of family and marriage and, yes, that dark reality of divorce and of domestic violence is not ever to be seen by the church and her leaders as but one more issue, but may in fact have something to do with why the gospel is good news at all. Shall we come to God's word together? Please turn with me, if you would, to the Old Testament book of Exodus. And I'd like to add one passage to the readings printed for you uh, by beginning our time together in the third chapter, the third chapter uh, of Exodus and verse 7 to verse 9, after which we will look over to the other, other page uh, to chapter 5 and the first verse, and then finally, a little later in Exodus and chapter 21, verses 10 and 11. Now, brethren, as we come to the Word of God, let us come appreciating that this is no ordinary word. This is not the word merely of any man. This is the word of the living God. And so let us hear him. First from Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Chapter 5 in the first verse. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And finally, in the 21st chapter, the 10th and 11th verses. 
in the same book of Exodus. If he, that is a man among the Israelites, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her, that is the first wife's food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does, if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, in your great kindness, in your faithfulness, in your steadfast mercy, fulfill your promise among us, we pray, and make this word abundantly fruitful for us. May the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ shine brightly here as his word is read, embraced, and believed. And we pray that as we hear this word, that we will learn something more of the life we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and rejoice in it, and that you would be pleased to bless us in this way for his sake. Amen. The three passages we have read this evening are ordered deliberately. If you will imagine it this way, Remember the old tetherball game? There's a, there's a fixed pole cemented into the ground or stabilized in some way. Then there's a, there's a long rope that extends from the top of that pole. And at the end of that bowl is a rubber ball. And the game, as they called it, unless you were the little boy on the other side getting hit on the head by somebody else's um, game, uh, the game was to hit that ball with your fist or your hand as hard as you could and make it swing around that fixed pole as many times as you can without doubling up the, the rope lines. Imagine, if you will, the three passages that we have read along the lines of such a game where what we have in Exodus chapter 3 is our fixed pole. And that what we come to in Exodus chapter 5, let my people go, becomes that rope extended from the fixed pole, which is constantly moving and yet always tethered to that pole. And that at what we have in Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11, is the ball, where that fixed pole, in combination with that moving commitment of the rope, smacks you upside the head with a practical application. If you will, Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11, tell us just a little bit of what life is like among God's people if they take seriously what Exodus 3 had to say and what Exodus 5, 1 has to say. And what is it that Exodus 3 says? What is this fixed pole, which, if you like, is as deep as we can dig to get to the foundation of so much of what we call the gospel? It is the good news that God has an open ear and that he sees and that he doesn't merely hear and see, but he acts. Now, what does that have to do with the issues as they flood the airwaves and social media and our Facebook pages with posts and, and the, the screaming heads on cable news of 
gender and of marriage and family and especially the church's crisis in so many fronts when it comes to unfaithfulness and dealing with domestic violence. What in the world would, he, would Exodus chapter 3, the God who hears and sees, really have to do with what we're here for, to celebrate and rejoice in the gospel? Well, bear with me. And remember what one of those slogans associated with the Reformation is. It's printed on the front of your bulletin. Christ alone. And think for just a moment about what that means, Christ alone. It means that the only hope for a sinner is Christ. But what do we mean by Christ? Well, we mean by Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, in terms specifically of his messianic vocation, the office he fulfilled. We're not talking about who he is as eternal son. We're thinking specifically about the work he came to do and does still as ascended high priest, but in the days of his earthly ministry, as the carrier out of God's purpose, as the the very agent of our redemption, the one who in his flesh obeyed the law in our place, the one who suffered in our stead on the cross, was raised from the dead. When we say Christ alone, we have in view what Jesus came to do and did. Great. Well, why do you keep using the word redemption when you talk about it? Well, because the Bible does over and over again. Yes, but what does redemption mean? Where does that word come from anyway? Well, it comes from the Exodus. Redeem. God redeemed his people out of Egypt. I know the story. I heard it when I was a child. You know the story too. Of course, that's where the word came from. All right, well, what was the redemption God accomplished in the Exodus? And to lead you just a little further down that path is my aim this evening. But it requires that we begin with the first step down that path. The drama of the Exodus, in which we learn something specific and concrete about why Christ alone is such good news for us, the first step is in in remembering what we might easily forget about the Exodus story. It's something that we get from the Old Testament as a whole, though there are certain texts that make it quite clear. We begin with the fact that God married Israel. The words of Isaiah 54 are quite clear in verses 5 to 7. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One is your Redeemer. That's quite explicit. But we could throw right alongside the words of Isaiah 54, similar words in Hosea 2, Ezekiel 16, and on and on we could go. This is also why, for instance, when Israel is faithful to God in the Old Testament, and when Israel is unfaithful to God in the Old Testament, the language of marriage is used. When Israel is faithful, they're said to be cleaving to their God in single-minded devotion to him. The very same language used for how a husband and a wife cleave to one another in the marriage union. This is the language of Deuteronomy 4, of Joshua 22. But when Israel proves unfaithful to God, they are said to play the harlot 
as their devotion to foreign gods trumps whatever they're saying about their devotion to the one true and living God. And so speaks Exodus 34, Numbers 25, Deuteronomy 31. Well, when exactly did God marry Israel anyway? Well, the Old Testament prophets all seem to assume that this happened at Mount Sinai. We, we note God's words through Moses in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7. I will take you to myself to be or become a people, and I will be your God. The language used by God here in view of what's going to happen at Mount Sinai is the common form for the act of marrying someone. I will take you to myself. Used throughout the Old Testament when you're marrying someone. It's the same language used in Deuteronomy 21, 24, 25, and other explicit marriage passages. But think as well of the golden calf incident. That awful, dark, and tragic early moment in Israel's history in Exodus 32 through 34. But notice how the Bible describes this incident specifically as an act of marital infidelity. You remember what happens upon discovery of Israel's transgression. Moses comes down the mountain, sees what is going on, and he throws those stone tablets down, and when they break, it's an image for the covenant itself being broken. Those tablets are the very tablets of the covenant. Their wickedness, their sin, has broken already the freshly constructed covenant, which is the meaning of his action. But that's not all that we read. We read as well that these, this, this golden calf is grounded down to powder, mixed a bit with water, and the wicked people are made to drink of this solution. You may have forgotten that part of the story, but it's quite key. Why? Well, because in Numbers chapter 5, this is precisely what a suspected adulteress is required to do. The ordeal of drinking water mixed with dust as a way of proving her guilt or excusing her. When Israel engages in idolatrous adoration of the golden calf, it is more than sin in general. It is marital infidelity breaking covenant with one to whom she has just freshly been joined at Sinai. So God married Israel is God's own language for the relationship. But second step, there's a problem here because Israel was bound to another first. This bride was already taken, to use our language. This is a major obstacle of God joining Israel to himself as his holy bride. But, but to whom was Israel already bound? Well, later Old Testament books clearly refer to Israel's time in Egypt as a time when she or when they worshipped the gods of Egypt. Joshua 24, verse 14, 
put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. He refers to what their fathers, the earlier generations, did in Egypt as a time in which the gods of Egypt were worshipped by the Hebrews. Ezekiel chapter 20 Verses 6 to 10 says the same thing as other prophetic passages do. Now, this is important because worship of the Egyptian gods, as the prophets understand this, forged a spiritual bond between the Hebrews and those idol gods, a bond that could not simply be ignored when God desired and determined to wed Israel by binding her to himself in marriage covenant. She is already in a marriage-like spiritual union with Egypt's gods, with Egypt's idols. Remember that golden calf incident once more. Remember what this transgression on on the Israel's part provoked in her relationship with God. It provoked God to break the covenant tablets and in so doing to image the breaking of the marriage covenant. Surely, if that is the case, then idolatry before the marriage union at Sinai Uh, at that uh, Sinai Union covenant would present a great obstacle to Yahweh ever joining her to himself. So how then can Israel's idolatrous union with the gods of Egypt be severed? Step three now. What we learn is that this is not merely an idolatrous union with the gods of Egypt. This is a union, a marriage union in spiritual terms that was also very, very much and dramatically so to the disadvantage and peril of the Hebrews. What we learn very quickly in Exodus is that while they are engaged in in the formal sense, they are bound to Egypt's gods and the prophets reflect back on their early proclivities to idolatry, we learn very quickly as well that this union involved terrible abuse of her. This was oppression. We connect the Egyptian bondage with bondage. We think of the Hebrews in Egypt as a harmed and oppressed people. In fact, Exodus 3 told us what? That God heard their shrieking cries and that God saw the great horror being done to them. So what will sever the Hebrews' marriage-like bond with the Egyptian gods? It's not going to be the Exodus event in general. Instead, it is God's demand that Pharaoh, and here come our special vocabulary words for the day, let my people go. Have you ever thought about this? Why was Moses directed by God to ask permission of an Egyptian king to release the people that God had determined to make his own? I mean, if we know anything at all about the story of the Exodus, we, our minds rush immediately to all of those plagues, the signs that 
God's servants do before Pharaoh and his court. Uh, Already, God had made abundantly clear he has great power. And we might think in our heads, he could have just forced the issue. It could have been by some magnificent and overwhelming display of might and power that he simply did the thing. He simply delivered Israel. What is going on here when not once, not twice, but over and over and over again, Moses is sent before this Pharaoh with one very simple message. God says, Yahweh says, let my people go. Why are they asking Pharaoh for permission? And why does the whole story seem to be on infinite replay until Yahweh gets this permission? Why are we in this endless loop of plague after plague, conversation after conversation. Moses himself is getting exasperated. He's not going to listen to me. And I told you, he's not listening to me. Go and say, let my people go. What does that have to do with anything? Well, the kings of Egypt were not like British monarchs and American presidents. The kings of Egypt were seen in the ancient Near East as intimately and very specially related to Egypt's gods. They were, in fact, the very embodiment of the Egyptian gods. The pharaoh was, in particular, the embodiment of Horus and son of the sun god Re. So, The pharaoh in Egypt is not merely king. He is the embodiment of the Egyptian deity and the god-king representative on earth. Which is telling us something about the real contest here. This is not a contest for Israel's deliverance between Moses and Pharaoh. Whatever the movies tell you. It's not a contest even between Israel and Pharaoh or between Israel and Egypt. This is a contest between Yahweh and the Egyptian gods embodied and represented by Pharaoh. But we still don't have our answer. Why the let my people go? Well, what does let go mean anyway? It's only one word in Hebrew, shalach, if you want to look it up. One word in Hebrew, but it is very easily the leading or main word for all of Exodus chapters 3 through 14. Basically, the whole saga we are recounting tonight. This is our guiding, our lead, our working word. This is that vocabulary term you can't get away from and you've memorized by the time you've reached chapter 7, and yet you still have seven chapters to go. It occurs over 40 different times. In fact, nine of those times are in this demand, let my people go, 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 let my people go. Do you get it? Nine times in that one demand, 40 times in the story that demand belongs to. 
And what does this word mean? Well, let go, we say. Well, yes, but what kind of letting go? And here's the aha moment of the passage. In fact, the word used for let go, letting my people go, is the very same term used for divorce in the Old Testament. It is the word used for the famous divorce laws in Deuteronomy 22, verses 19 and 29. It's also used throughout the prophetic imagery for Israel as God's bride or wife. It's used in Isaiah 50, verse 1, in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 8. This is throughout the Old Testament the main word for dissolving a marriage bond. What this means, then, is as Moses presents himself before the God-King of Egypt, given the reality of the Hebrews' spiritual marriage-like bond to the gods of Egypt, as he presents himself before this God-King Pharaoh as God's spokesman, Moses is telling him to grant a divorce to the Hebrews, so that when they are formally released, and only as they are formally released, they will therefore also be available for Yahweh to join to himself at Mount Sinai. Now this is not the only functioning, working metaphor at work in the passage. Exodus itself will tell us this is also the redemption of Yahweh's Son. Elsewhere, the time of Israel in Egypt will be referred to as the virginal years of the Hebrews. But it's the nature of a metaphor to function powerfully in its own context. And this is, without question, a most prominent one for the Exodus event as a whole. What was God doing? He was telling the one to whom the Hebrews were formerly joined in a marriage bond to release her, release her from the marriage bond. Okay, interestingly enough, we think, I'm going to take that home and try it out and read those articles and check online and see if this is true. Okay, but don't miss this. Why? Why would God do this? Well, because of that fixed pole. It's who God is to hear the cry of those who shriek under oppression. It's God's way to see with personal interest, but not merely to hear and to see, but to act. And so the message is sent over and 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 over again until God has his way, for he will have his wife. And he will deliver her. He will not walk away at the first failing or disappointment or frustration. He will persevere after the one who is the object of his electing love. He will pound on the door of Pharaoh until the release is accomplished. 
And we think, well, why, why allow the Hebrews to get there in the first place and go through this whole wild and crazy drama of let my people go over and over again like a broken record, only to be frustrated for eight or nine times before he finally does it? Why, why let them, if you're the sovereign God of the universe, why let them get into that position, into that kind of marriage bond in the first place, only to go through all of these crazy steps to dissolve it later? Remember Exodus 21. Remember the ball at the end of that tetherball rope. Remember the pulse beats of Torah. Be holy as I am holy. It would appear that among the many possible reasons for God's inscrutably wise purpose in writing the story of the Hebrews in this way, among those reasons would be this, because this is precisely how he insists the men of Israel will be. They will be like their God. They will not turn away from the shrieking cry. They will not turn a blind eye, and they will not merely hear or see. They will act. And if they fail to do so, they will be the losers in the story. If by way of neglect or oppression or abuse or some other deprivation, Exodus 21 verses 10 and 11 tell us, one who is supposed to be the object of affection, provided for and protected, now becomes the object of scorn, neglect, abuse, deprivation, the loser in the story will not, must not be her, but the perpetrator. And enforcing this principle, you will be holy as I am holy. The law tells such a man, you diminish her food, her clothing, her marital rights, three categories used elsewhere in the Old Testament for marital obligations, you diminish these things, she goes out for nothing. In other words, without liability, Without deprivation, without loss, she loses nothing in this. You are the one who loses out. You have broken covenant with. You have broken your word with. You have violated the covenant with her. You suffer the consequences of it. Because God hears the cry of the deprived, hears the cry of the, of the oppressed, sees the abuse, sees the harm, and does not turn away. And he fully expects that those who will delight in being called his people will act like it. And when and if they don't, that the covenant community will insist on it. What kind of God is this? What kind of God is this who, as the Westminster Assembly patiently and deliberately articulated the matter in Confession of Faith, chapter 24, would recognize as a valid ground for the tragedy of divorce not only the act of adultery, but also what it calls, in paragraph 6, willful desertion. On the one hand, deliberately, it would appear, reflecting the widespread and common sentiment among the Reformed churches on the continent that such desertion, negligence, abuse was in fact a valid ground for divorce, but on the other hand, also doing what was immensely difficult in the England of this time, where the fortunes change almost every hour between Roman Catholic 
canon law and Protestant principles prevailing, as they did not merely agree with what many canon law theorists would say, okay, adultery, but only that, but they recognized this other element. They don't give us their reasons, they don't go into detail about why, but perhaps as we reflect on the Christ of the gospel, the gospel defended and proclaimed by our fathers in the Reformation, perhaps as we think about the meaning of his name, Christ, as we celebrate it, something of God's character pokes through to tell us why. That he is not the kind of God who will turn the ear and the eye, but who acts and who expects that his people will look like him. So that those who are the true victims, those who are the oppressed, those who are the harmed, can rejoice in this fundamental gospel reality. That God's ear is open. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, many of our brethren might, might cringe, shirk, maybe tisk and shake their heads at the very prospect of connecting things like this to the gospel on the one hand and of all things a Reformation Day celebration more specifically. But I've discovered something over the years of pastoral ministry. It's really not that difficult to refer to things like this as issues when they are happening over there. But when biography becomes autobiography, when the story becomes your story in one way or another, we sure hope this is what the gospel includes. Boy, we hope when it's our daughter when it's our sister, when it's our mother, boy, we hope the gospel includes something like this. And here, in fact, is the God of the gospel. Is it, is it for nothing that in all of Holy Scripture, the Christian canon of 66 books, there is simply no redemptive historical, covenant historical reality that runs deeper as the very infrastructure of Christian faith and life than the Exodus, the very template for redemption, the very template for understanding who this Jesus of Nazareth really is? Is it for nothing at all that when we get to the deepest recesses of the gospel of the living God, this is what we come up against? Because until we wrestle with that, we'll keep thinking of these things as issues. And we'll throw them in that bin where other issues go. And we leave it to the specialists and, and those who have side hobbies related to these interests or who like to be in the news or write blog posts. We'll leave these issues to them and think that what we're really about is preaching the gospel. When here is the startling truth of it. This is what God means by the gospel. Let my people go. That God is not one who settles for second best by, 
bringing over these Hebrews or having a rough time of it, no, but that he is one who deliberately, lovingly, and sovereignly, powerfully takes what is defiled in order to sanctify it with himself, and ultimately, as in Paul's words of marriage significance in Ephesians 5, so that in the Lord Jesus Christ, the true king of Proverbs 31, the true redeemer of the oppressed of any era and context, will present to himself a radiant bridal church without stain or Egyptian wrinkle or any other such idolatrous blemish, but finally holy and truly blameless. When we get that this is, in fact, the gospel of God and the God of the gospel, maybe then we will appreciate more fully what we have already sung tonight. Thou hast the true and perfect gentleness. No harshness hast thou and no bitterness. Make us to taste the sweet grace found in thee and ever stay in thy sweet unity. It is good news that for God this is not an issue that this is the motivating cause of the gospel. It is good news still to be proclaimed by the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that God's ear is open and he does not turn away. And what he hears, he acts upon. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has sealed this truth with blood. And God be praised for it. Let us pray. Blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, how grateful we are, how humbled we are that in your sovereign power and inscrutable wisdom you have seen fit to redeem the unworthy, to deliver us from sin and bondage to death and decay, for which we were liable. And that you remain the God who redeems because he hears and sees in love. How thankful we are for Christ alone, the hope and ground of our salvation, in whose cross Redemption has, in fact, taken place forever. And in whose resurrection, tears of weeping and sorrow have been turned to cries of joy and peace. In your grace, bring peace to your church. Mend the broken. Make whole those who are bowed down. And may the glory of the gospel continue to fill your church as she grows more and more into the truth of this beautiful fact that you are the God who hears and who calls us to hear as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.